Welcome to the Graceway Bible Church Podcast, a place to be immersed in teachings from God's Word. We hope you will be blessed by the Word of God as we discover together what our Heavenly Father wants us to understand. If you would like more information about our church, how to know Jesus as your Savior, or teachings from the Bible, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org. Join us now as we dive into God's Word. You know, what's the one thing that every Christian really should look forward to hearing when we get to heaven? Right. Well done, my good and there we go, Ty, Tyrell, great. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Right. There's lots of examples in Scripture of faithful servants. Right. We studied um, we studied the women of the Bible, women chosen by God. There was eleven of them right there. We think of uh, David and Daniel and Ruth and Abraham and Esther. I mean, the list can just keep going on and on and on. But the one person that stands out most in my mind of a good and faithful servant is Job. You know, Job was an honorable, upright, and faithful man um, that was beset with the greatest suffering, unsupportive friends, and, oh my goodness, sorry about that, an unsupportive, uh, I'm sorry, an unsympathetic wife, and a man who Satan just sought to tear down, but God ultimately used to fulfill his glory. So if ever there was a model of a good and faithful servant, Job was it. So uh, we're going to tackle Job. And when I mentioned that I wanted to work on Job this spring, I think I got one or two raised eyebrows of, man, that's a lot of grimness for 20 weeks. Um, But like I mentioned before when I was previewing the series, we are not going to be focusing on Job's suffering all 20 weeks. That would be pretty dire and not, I think ultimately not all that rewarding. So we're going to, we're going to move through, up, we're going to be able to get up through Job 27, and we're going to look at the interaction that Job had with his friends and, and some, of the inform- some of what Job's friends were relaying back to him, though overall their approach was incorrect, some of the things they shared have value to us. So that's going to be part of our study, um, uh, this, this uh, I'm sorry, a part of our study this spring. You know, when I was prepping for this series, I came across a quote from a pastor who said that Job is one of those books that almost every Christian knows, and most of us have read, but really, we're really only for, for, uh, familiar with the beginning and the end, the suffering and the redemption, because the poetry in the middle is really a bit of a, can really be a bit of a challenge for us to try and understand. So it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit enlighten us through these, uh, these next uh, 19 to 20 weeks that we have together in this series. So we are going to be tackling Job. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful for you. We're thankful for your presence. We're thankful for your word. Um, we're thankful for Job and, and what, you've, what, you've de- what you've demonstrated in his life. So Father, we pray that as we engage in this study, that your Holy Spirit uh, enlighten your word and enlighten us and allow your word to minister to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When starting any book, it's important for us to look at things like authorship, history, style, um, and time period, because that really helps inform us in our study. All right, the one thing we want to talk about is the authorship of the book of Job. Right out of the gate, the authorship is unknown. We don't know who wrote the book of Job. But there are some theories among theologians that maybe Job himself wrote a large part of it. Maybe it was Elihu possibly Moses, um, but really the author's unknown. Um, but having an unknown author is okay, right? The book of Hebrews, the author there is unknown, part of canon. Book of Job, author unknown, part of canon. So you also look at when it was written. 
Um, theologians, again, put the data anywhere from being written from the time of Noah to being written in the exile period. That's like 2,000 years of when people say it was written. Uh, but besides authorship and when it was written, we also need to look at its style. Right? Job was included amongst the poetry books. So it's in there with Psalms and Proverbs and Songs of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. So the, these are all important things for us to just try and, and, and grasp um, sort of what's going on with the book. But more important than those is really where it, was, where it occurred and when it occurred. Because as, as we know, to proper understanding of Scripture, really, we really need to take Scripture in its context of when and where it was written. So the first thing is where it was written. I'm sorry, not where it was written, where, where the events occurred. So we see right at the beginning, right in, uh, at the start of verse 1, we see that he was from the land of Uz. Some I, I've seen it pronounced Uz or Uz. We're going to go with Uz. Um, that's how I understand it. Uh, we see that he was in the east. And I have, oh, that was the, there you go. We see that he was in the east. Um, so when we say east, we're thinking east of what, right? Because anything could be east. Sometimes when Andrew and I are out driving and we're lost, well, we're not really lost because I don't ever get lost, but we're not exactly sure where we're going. I say just head east because eventually you'll hit water, right? So for us, it's not that far. So when we say east, and we say east of something in scripture, it's typically east of Israel, Right? But here, Israel hasn't been established yet, so it's going to be east of the Palestinian area, the, the east of Palestine. Um, because of the work that Job was engaged in, because of his agriculture and his flocks, um, he was probably close to water, and he was in this area that's referred to as the Fertile Crescent. I don't know if... Oh, see, it doesn't work on the screen there. In the Fertile Crescent, which runs along the Red Sea up into the gulf that's there and up into the valley to the Jordan River. That's the Fertile Crescent there in the Arabian area. So he was likely in the area where the Uz is with the question mark. A couple things that sort of place it there. One, he needed to be in a fertile area. Two, as we will see in next week's study, he was raided by the Chaldeans and the Sabians. So they needed to be close enough to be able to get there. And we will see that Eliphaz is, is an Edomite. So, so Eliphaz had to be close enough to him as well. So that places us east of, the, uh, east of the Red Sea, right about where he is there. Now, when we look at the events and when they took place, like I mentioned, some, some say that it occurred maybe sometime before Noah all the way up to the exile. Um, I, I think it's nowhere near uh, that new. I, I tend to think it's very old because there's a couple of indicators in the book that tell us sort of, that sort of help us place it there. One, the one way that Job is described is he's described as blameless and upright. All right, this is a description that's only, been, that's only been held for two people in Scripture. One is Noah, and the other is Abraham. So that one that puts him, I think, puts him towards that company. Now, he wouldn't have been a contemporary of them, right? He would not have been around at the same time because God said there is no one like him, right? So that means there's no other one. So if Noah and Abraham are blameless, Job couldn't have been around at the same, at the exact same time time as them. And we will see in today's study in verse 5, he presents an offering for his children. Offerings would only have been for the Levitical priests, right? So if it was in the time of the priests uh, in the Levitical period, uh, um, uh, no, Job would have brought, brought the offering to the temple and the priests would have presented the offering. So I think this places it before Moses, right? Because Moses is the one in, in Leviticus that brought about the, the priesthood. And one we see at the end of the book, we see that Job lived an additional 140 years. Now, we don't know how old Job was in this 
time, when, when these events take place right now, when Job's suffering is, we don't know what his age is, but I imagine he has adult children. Um, so I would place him maybe around 60 years old. So that would put Job at about 200 years old when he died. So as we look at his age when he died, I think we need to place it in the scale between Noah and Abraham. So I think that places him sometime before Abraham. So what do we have here? We have a book of poetry with unknown authorship about a man who lived somewhere east of Palestine and the events take place sometime before Abraham. You know, there's, no, there's nothing that we can conclude here, but I'm pretty comfortable with, with what we had presented. But besides this uncertainty, what is certain is that Job was real, he existed, and his suffering was real. And he exemplified tremendous character that sustained him through the most difficult times in his life. So let us turn now to Job chapter 1. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 8. Now, I chose to stop at verse 8. It's going to look like it's in the middle of the next section of, of, the, of the chapter there. And the reason I chose to end at verse 8, because we're going to see here at the beginning that Job is described by the writer as blameless and upright. And then at the end of verse 8, God describes him as blameless and upright. So it creates a bookend for us between how he's viewed by others and how he's viewed by God. So it has here, beginning in verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his day, and they would send him, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be, for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So the first thing that we see, oh, oh one tooth mass. All right, you're going to have to pretend you didn't see him. As I get it. All right. So the first thing that we see here is we're going to see in verses 1 to 4 is we're going to see that Job is a wealthy man. You know, when I was a kid, my first job as a kid was delivering newspapers. You know, I was a paper boy. And for those of you that don't know what a newspaper is, you know, we used to have to get our news on a piece of paper delivered to our house instead of going to our phones and our computers. And actually, when I was a kid, we actually got two a day. We got the morning edition and the evening edition. Um, but before I went out to deliver the papers, I used to love to read the comics. And I had two favorites. One was The Far Side, right? And nothing to me can beat The Far Side. The other involved a gang, a, a gang of friends and their dog. They had names like Linus and Lucy, Marcy, Pigpen, Franklin, Woodstock, and of course, Charlie Brown. There you go. All right. 
Do you remember the tagline for Charlie Brown? You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Right? And he was a good man. But he was a good man or a good boy that had problems. One, he could never get a Christmas tree that looked right. right? Two, he could never get the little redheaded girl to notice him. He was stuck out in the rain uh, at the baseball game. Right? He had a hard time understanding his teacher. Right? And then who could ever forget, he could never cook a football. Right? Because Lucy always took the football out from underneath of him. He was a good man with problems. But Charlie Brown can't hold the candle to Job. Right? Job... They can't hold a candle to Job in his goodness, and he can't hold a candle to Job in his challenges. Job's challenges, his suffering, was so incredibly painful and could have broken any of us. But it's really Job's goodness that sets him apart. And he's described in a way that is reserved for very few people in Scripture. Like I said before, Job is described as being blameless and upright. As I mentioned, that this is a way that only Abraham in Genesis uh, 17 and Noah in Genesis 6 are described. But I think we need to, look at the, need to take a look at this word blameless, because there's a translation out there that actually renders this word as perfect. And I think using the word perfect actually misguides our thinking. So blameless does not equal perfect, because there's only ever one perfect person, and that's Jesus Christ. Right? So blameless here, we need to go back to the language. So, Linda, back to what you were doing here, going back to the language here. The Hebrew word here is the word calm, all right? And the word here is not perfect. It's, it, it's more completeness, a sense of something being finished, being almost guiltless. So the way to relate that to us as believers, I would, be, I would describe it as being fully sanctified in the spirit, as sanctified as we can be in the spirit, this side of heaven. And this is how Job is described, as being blameless. He's also described as being upright, and he's these two things because he fears God and turns away from evil. Some, um, some uh, translations say shun, either one is fine, but turned away from evil. You know, when I hear fear, I think of what scares me. And if you remember from last week, what scares me is getting up a bridge and not making it all the way, or going over a narrow bridge with no sides. But fear here is not the fight or flight situations that sometimes we, we may find ourselves stuck in. Fear here does not mean dread. None of us are to dread God. Fear does not mean to be afraid. God is not a God that wants us to fear him, right? But to fear God means that we respect who he is, we respect what he does, and we respect what he says. It's not the fear of a slave before a master. Right? It's the reverence of a child before a loving father. It's the respect that leads to faithfulness, obedience, and service. And that's the type of man that Job is. Right. Besides being wealthy in faith, Job is wealthy in children. It says to hear him that there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And I imagine having ten kids, he loved to brag on them. I mean, who doesn't love to brag on their kids? Right? Everybody, should love, everybody loves to brag on their kids. You know, I, I love to talk to people. Um, and the other, I don't know, a couple months ago, I went over to 7-Eleven. I had a hankering for a Slurpee. Um, I went over to 7-Eleven, and a guy was there um, also checking out, and he had a hat that said, USMC Dad. So I was like, oh, man, one of your kids is in the service? You should have seen his face light up. It was like sun came out of his teeth and like out of his eyes. He was so proud of his son talking about him. 
uh, and what his son was doing in the service. Just that sort of pride. And I have to imagine that Job had the same pride in his children. Right? And we know from also, we know from our study earlier that large families were considered a blessing from the Lord. Right? So we have Job here being wealthy in children. We also see that Job is wealthy in provision. Right? He possesses 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, um, and assorted other animals and servants. And I think here, Job's wealth probably also implies that he was a person of tremendous influence. It says here that he was the greatest in the East, so I imagine that he was influential in the area, um, in, the area in which he lived. And when they say here that he's the greatest in the East, talking about his provisions, and again, it puts him in great company because Solomon is described as, is, Solomon's wisdom is described as being the greatest in the East in the Book of Kings. So we have Job here in some really, really tremendous company. And besides being wealthy, in addition to being wealthy in faith, wealthy in children, and wealthy in provision, we see that he is wealthy in family. It says here, his sons used to go up and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. I see here a gathering, a love, and a harmony of family so these, these boys getting together each, each day of their feast. Now, I've, I've seen this described as each day being their birthday. So each one is going their birthday, so seven times a year. I've also seen it described as their seven days, so each one is going up to have a feast every day. Uh, but either way, <clears throat> what do they do? They invite their sisters, they invite their siblings to come with them. What an image of harmony in family. <clears throat> you know, we all seek to be wealthy in some way. Right? So whether it's in provision, whether it's in a connected family, solid children, or having a healthy faith, we all desire to be wealthy in some way. But I think we need to take a look and consider where do we desire to be wealthy first? Or where do we desire to be wealthy most? You know, I, I think our world has conflated needs and wants. Right? They seem to have been merged together, but they are two very different things. Right? Our needs are our necessities, right? the things we absolutely have to have. And wants are things that we desire. But individuals in contemporary culture have viewed wants as needs, and we become misguided in what God desires for us. Now, Andrew and I are, are trying to go farm to table. Right? If you don't know what that is, farm to table is trying to get your food as close to where it came from as possible and so it cuts out all the processing and everything in the middle. But to go farm to table, you can't just go to a farm and say, hey, I want to grab a head of lettuce today. Or listen, I, I want some pork and I'm just going to go grab some spare ribs. You have to get the entire section over to your house and stored. So we were looking to get a freezer. And we wanted to get a freezer. And I think having wants is OK. Right? Having wants allow us to see the excesses and the blessings of God, but we have to make sure we have ourselves ordered correctly between wants and needs. You know, Americans have close to $1 trillion of credit card debt. That's just an immense, immense amount of money. Some of that is for necessities. Needs definitely come up. We have situations where we, you know, sometimes we lose jobs, emergencies come up, credit card debt, 
is, I don't want to say it's fine, credit card debt when, to cover emergency situations is acceptable, but when we have allowed desires to come into what our necessities are, we end up in a situation where we are so confused about the direction that God wants for us. You know, Andrew and I, we don't, cover, we don't carry any credit card debt. We haven't had any credit card debt for over 10 years. But like I'm saying, you know, necessities come up and there'll be times that we, we really need things or we want to move ourselves in a different direction, and that can be okay, but we need to make sure things are ordered correctly, right? I kind of take it back to the garden, right? How did God create? How, how were things ordered out for us? There was God, there was man, there was family, then there was stuff, right? So we need to get our wants, we need to get our needs in the correct place, getting it focused on God first and then moving ourselves forward the way God had created us. So we need to be focused on being wealthy in faith, right? That needs to be our first focus. And we're wealthy in faith when we're blameless and upright, and we're blameless and upright when we fear God and shun evil, right? That's how God ordered it. And Job was wealthy in this manner, right? Besides being wealthy, Besides being a wealthy man, Job was also a caring man. He cared for the righteousness of his children. He was presenting an offering to cover any sin. We were discussing this passage at our staff meeting on Sunday, and then he raised a great question, which I thought was really funny. He was like, what were they doing that Job needed to do this? You know, what were they doing? And I'm sure the girls were perfect, and it was just the boys, right, that were doing this. Now, how many of us have had kids and they come in with that look with their head down and their eyes up and you're like, oh man, what did you do now? Sort of thing. Now, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up across from the Board of Education building and there was a nice section of wall there where I could practice baseball. I could practice my pitching. So I went and in chalk, I marked out what would be a strike zone and I would get back about you know, 50 feet and I would work on throwing the ball against the wall. And I'm using a hard ball because that's what, we, that's what you use in baseball. So it was a nice section of wall. There was a glass door that was kind of over here and there was a window that was over here. I can hear the chuckles because you kind of know where this is going. And I'm sure at some point my dad said, now you better not use a hard ball against the wall. But I'm like, no, I got this, I'm pretty accurate. All right, so I go, I get the ball, I'm gonna start practicing a curve ball. I go, I wind up go to snap the ball, flies out of my hand, and into the glass door. So I go in, and my dad, dad, you're not gonna guess what I did. You know, I, broke the, I broke the giant glass window. So my dad, after probably being upset for a minute or two, uh, went to the board of ed, explained to them the situation, and you know, I'm sure it was offering to pay for the replacement. They said no, and it was okay, and I didn't use a hard ball again against the wall. I, ended up, I switched over to a tennis ball because I could never throw that hard. But the point was, you know, you know a parent stamping, stepping in, taking responsibility for, for their children. You know, Job was caring for the righteousness of his kids. And besides that, Job demonstrated his spiritual devotion to the Lord. You know, I'm looking what Job is doing here, and I'm saying, his kids have to be seeing this. His kids have to be seeing Job presenting these offerings to the Lord. You know, and it gets me thinking about the importance of what we model for those that we minister to, whether our kids, whether our spouses, whether the people in our Sunday school classes, right? It gets me thinking about how we model Christ to them, right? And I'm not talking about putting on the private and public, the church hat and the not church hat. 
right? It's not like, okay, my kids are awake, so I'm only gonna watch certain shows, and when they go to bed, I'm gonna watch something else. No. Or it's not like, okay, I'm only gonna use certain language when I'm in this house here, I'm in front of my church friends, and I'm gonna do something different. No. Modeling Christ and modeling the Lord is exemplifying him always, and we know Job wasn't putting on his God hat and taking it off because it says that he was blameless. He was blameless and upright. Right? So it's about just constantly modeling the Lord. To be less blame is fearing the Lord and shunning evil. Right? It's exactly what Scripture tells us. So what does that mean for us as believers? So, all right, so we know we don't carry the blame of our sin. Christ has taken that from us. We just sang that here this morning. So what does that mean for us as believers? Um, what that means for us as believers, I think, is modeling the fruits of the Spirit here from Galatians 5. But the fruits of the Spirit... This fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I look at that and I'm like, man, that is a long list, right? But there's always going to be some area that we struggle, right? And what areas do we model? I think anybody can do this when it's easy, right? But how do we do it when it's hard? You know, so we're going to be seeing these coming months, how Job modeled this, how Job remained blameless and upright when he was beset with the greatest possible suffering anyone could experience. You know, when we are blessed by God and gears suddenly shift, it is very hard for us to exemplify this. Right? So I hope for us in our study that as we can see how Job handled these things, it will help minister to us to how we can exemplify these things when we have challenges that are before us. So I think if we look at this list, we can probably see one of those, at least one of those, where we struggle. I look at that list and I know where mine is right away. And Andrea looks at that list and she says, yep, I know where yours is right there. You know? And uh, I'm not going to tell you which one. But uh, now I know, I, I, know, I know where it is and I know where I need to work on. So, but for each one of us, it's unique, right? Because where's our challenge? Where, where are we not modeling? Right? But Job, I think as we get into our study, we're going to see how Job modeled these, modeled his blamelessness and his faithfulness and his uprightness in the most difficult times in his life. So as we look at verse, verses 1 through 5 here, there are some incredible things being set up, right? We see how Job is described. We see how Job, we read about his wealth, his prosperity, his importance, his caringness for his children, a man who cares deeply for the Lord. We're seeing a setup here, right, for how devastating Job's suffering is about to become by the scripture laying out for us the type of man that he is. We are, we are going to see how devastating this loss for is. And it could be very easy for him to blame God, get mad at God, and even turn from God. And we're going to see how Job remained blameless. So now as we get into verse 6 here, we begin to see Job's life being caught up into heavenly strategies. He says here, have you considered, oh, this is, um, oh, that's one too far, I'm sorry. So let me go back one. So we see here him being caught up in heavenly strategies. So the first thing we see here in verse 6, we hear about the sons of God. Now, we don't know who the sons of God are. Uh, some think that they're angels, possibly angels coming before God to give a report of what their actions are, or possibly getting instructions from the Lord about what, uh, what God is going to have them be working on next. All right, and then we see that Satan comes along with them, and Satan, his name itself means adversary. He is the eternal adversary for all mankind, and he is the accuser of all. We see this in Revelation 12. Now, we, we obviously, we don't have time to get into a study on who, who Satan is, um, 
But what we do see is we do see that God speaks first. God speaks first. He is clearly the one that's in charge here. Right? And by these individuals coming before God, it automatically sort of establishes a level. Right? They're coming before God, almost like a defendant before a judge. Right? So they're coming before God. And God says to Satan, where do you come from? And Satan responds, to and fro, up and down on the earth. This should really scare us, that Satan is in all places, up and down on the earth. And this is just like Peter tells us, that Satan is there ready to devour us. Right? So we, this really should scare us. But the amazing, um, and Satan, I'm sorry, um, Satan, the, let, me get, let me back up for a second. So Satan is ready there to devour us. Right? So this is something we just really need to be aware of. Right? And I think by us walking in the fruits of the Spirit, understanding our relationship with Christ, understanding how the Spirit guides us and strengthens us, will help sustain us when, when Satan um, comes before us with the challenges that he presents to try to separate us from God. Right? But the amazing thing in all this, and I don't want to get caught up in the, the legal proceedings, that's really not the point here. The point here actually is in verse 8. So the first thing God, God says to Satan, he says, have you considered, right? What I think here is that Satan has been working against God, has been trying to work against God, and he says, God says to Satan, have you considered? He is setting Satan up for the biggest face plant in the history of the world. He says, have you considered my servant Job? You know, I've been, I've been dressed down in public before, and it's kind of embarrassing, you know, it's embarrassing when it's one person. It's really embarrassing when it's 20. Satan is about to get the most public dressing down in the history of the world. God is setting Satan up to fail. Not only are those that are present at the time in this sort of heavenly council that's going on, seeing that Satan's about to fail, but the billions of people that have read this in Scripture know that Satan is a failure. Right? God is setting him up to, setting him up to fail. And God's um, recognition of Job and how he describes Job blows my mind. The first thing he does, he describes Job as my servant. A servant is one who understands the relationship between them and the Lord. A servant is one who dedicates their lives to seeking God's will. He is blameless and upright. There is no one like him on the earth. What a wonderful way to be described by God. In this one sentence, God describes his relationship with Job. He describes Job's character, Job's faithfulness, and Job's uniqueness. God presents Job as something very, or someone, very, very special. So to sort of to draw this into a close, to sort of bundle this together, Job is described three ways. One, he is a wealthy man. But Job's, Job's focus in his wealth isn't on his flocks and isn't on his provisions or his herds. He's placed his value on his family. He has placed his value in his faith. You know, it's okay for us to have stuff. It's okay for us to go on, go on vacations, go to nice restaurants, all those things. But we just need to be properly ordered, right? God, family, stuff. We see that Job is a caring man, right? Job cares for his family, and no matter how grown his children will, be, children will be, he is always going to care for them. Those of us with adult children don't stop worrying about our kids, and we don't stop praying for our kids, 
right? We need to let them grow. We need to let them stumble. We need to let them make their own mistakes. But just like Job, we continue to pray for their protection for them. And ultimately, Job is a righteous man. He is one that is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Like I asked when I started, what is the one thing we all strive to hear when we get to heaven? Well done, my good and faithful servant. God describes Job exactly this way. You know, in the coming weeks, we're going to be seeing the ultimate unfolding of good versus evil, an event that occurred 4,000 years ago. But Satan continues to try to undermine God, and we get caught in the middle. We just need to turn to Christ, turn to his spirit, and allow them to sustain us through every difficult moment that we face. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Job. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the modeling of Job as he, as he remains blameless and upright through every challenge that he faces. Father, we, um, we have challenges in our lives. We all are going to face difficulties, Father, but we thank you for what you provide for us. We thank you for your spirit to guide us and strengthen us. <clears throat> So, Father, we just ask that you be with us this day. We ask for the challenges that we hold inside of us, the challenges that others don't know about, the challenges that are personal to us, the areas that Satan seeks to separate us from you. We ask that all of that be set aside and that we can just allow the fruits of your spirit to manifest in us, to keep us strong and faithful to you. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand. Let us sing together. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through his Son, Jesus Christ.